Open your Bible, please, to the Gospel of John, chapter number 3. The Gospel of John, chapter number 3. This week in Revival, Brother Bill Jenkins brought a series of messages that were tremendous on the greatest, greatest different things. And I'd encourage you, if you were not able to be here, you get to see these. But it was, it, was, it was great. God spoke to hearts. God used Brother Bill. I appreciate him so very much being here. And I want this morning for just a few minutes to preach to you on Jesus' greatest sermon. Jesus' greatest sermon. I understand that that's just what I'm saying. And it's just a, a title. Because in the first place, you may think the Sermon on the Mount would be his greatest sermon or John chapter 14, which is my favorite passage of scripture in all the Bible. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I'll come again receiving to myself that where I am there, you may be also. I love that passage of scripture. And that may be what you consider to be the Lord's favorite or best sermon. And, uh, but as, as I've come to this point for this reason, this morning, I share this. And, and the other thing is when I say this is the greatest, that would mean that something else he said was inferior to this. And that certainly is not true. You understand what I'm saying? I just, just, just to keep that thought going. And this was on my heart, such a simple truth and yet so profound. When I was in the uh, Jubilee over at Brother Jim, Brother Jim had asked me each morning in the Jubilee to speak on the subject, we shall not be moved. And I came across the passage of scripture where the apostle Paul said to be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. And in that series of studies that I did in the morning services over there, I, I, and part of that, I, I did some studying and, and thinking about our Lord and his example. For instance, it says in the book of Hebrews that it ought to consider him who such, suffered such great contradiction against himself. But yet for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despised the shame and so on. In spite of all of his problems, in spite of all the difficulties, in spite of all the rejection of the people and all the physical persecution he went through, Jesus set his flint, uh, face as a flint to go to Calvary and to suffer and bleed and die for you. He would not be deterred from what he felt like the Father and what was God's plan for his life, the Father's plan for his life. And so as I was studying about our Lord, I, I noted several things about his ministry that I don't know that I'd ever uh, said out loud, although I may have thought it from time to time. But I noticed a few things about his ministry. I, I think about great preachers. I, I think about Dr. B.R. Lakin. I don't know if you ever, know, ever heard of Dr. Lakin, but Dr. Lakin has a message on heaven that uh, most every preacher knows about that message. Dr. R.G. Lee had a message called Payday Someday. And great pastor up at the First Baptist Church of Hammond, Indiana, Dr. Jack Hiles, had a message called Fresh Oil. Dr. J. Harold Smith had a message called uh, God's Three Deadlines. And people, preachers particularly, who are familiar with those men, if you say those, their name, you think about it. If you go all the way back into the 1800s, Jonathan Edwards preached that great message called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. He's known for that message. And as I begin to think about the Lord Jesus Christ and think about, well, what is, what is his sermon? What's the sermon? When you think about Jesus, what sermon do you think about? And I realized 
that it didn't have a great sermon title. You might, like I said, you might think about the sermon on the mount or whatever. But I don't think about a great sermon that's recorded in the Bible that we identify as being a sermon. And I began to look a little closer at his life and I found out some things. I, I just noted a few things about his life that I call your attention to right now. The Lord Jesus Christ's ministry was marked by solitude. He began a ministry the last three and a half years, but it was marked by solitude. It, it, nowadays, we want to get a crowd together. And the bigger the crowd, the more spiritual we think it is. And yet our Lord, a lot of time when the crowd gathered, he would withdraw, withdraw himself. And a lot of times, right when everything was just at its peak, he'd leave and go to a mountain somewhere alone to pray. He, he, he did a lot of that. If you read the Bible, I, I've often thought about him going to the Gethsemane and praying before his uh, arrest and he, great sweat drops of blood falling from his, from his brow. And yet as I've studied his life and gone through his life, I found out that wasn't the first time he'd been in that garden and prayed. Amen. He went there all the time to pray. That was one of his favorite places of prayer. And if you wait till a crisis to pray, you've waited too long. Amen. You better start praying now. You better have a prayer place now. But his life was marked by solitude. He spent a lot of time by himself, getting away from everybody, away from everything, and getting along with God. As I travel and preach across the country and go here and there and everywhere on occasions, I, I go by myself. And my wife said, don't you want somebody to go with you or somebody volunteers to go with me? And I'm, I'm not saying I don't want anybody to go with me necessarily. But it, I say, no, it doesn't bother me to ride by myself. In fact, I enjoy some by myself time. And to go to revivals or whatever. I love that time, uh, have that time alone with the Lord. But his ministry was marked with solitude. Then I, I noticed something else. I, I noticed that his ministry was marked by what I call slowness. Now, I'm, I'm not necessarily slow. I'm getting worse all the time. And, and what my body won't do, my mind's still doing. My mind's running 100 miles an hour, whether my body is or not. But his ministry was, slow may not be a real good word, but he was never in a hurry. If you read the life of our Lord, you, you'll see him in that three and a half year ministry. A lot to do, a lot of places to go, a lot of people to see, things to do. But he was never in a hurry. He always had time for sinners. And he always had time for those who had need. And he, he, he was not in a hurry. Because he was led by the Holy Spirit. Third thing I noticed about his ministry was this. Our, our Lord's ministry was marked by what I called selectivity. By that I mean he came to the pool of Siloam. The Bible said there was a great multitude of sick people there. But he spoke to one certain man and said, will thou be made whole? And that you see that throughout his ministry. God, the Holy Ghost had prepared a person and had him to go and, 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 and he was there to minister that one need. Selectivity. And, and if we would learn to walk according to the Holy Ghost of God, we could see that same result. But then the last thing I noted was this. His ministry was marked by simplicity. His sermons are very simple. His messages are very simple. And in that Bible study over there, I, as I thought about his life, I thought probably the greatest message, the most familiar verse in all the Bible, the most favorite verse of the New Testament around the whole world for Christians of all ages has been John three sixteen, And he spoke that verse to one man. Just one man. 
not a million, not five million, but one man. And yet it's probably his greatest sermon in my estimation. Will you read with me or follow with me as I read this brief passage of scripture? I've got just a few things I'm going to say and we'll, we'll go, but I'm asking God to speak to our hearts. In chapter number three, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. The same came to Jesus by night and said unto him, Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher come from God. For no man can do these miracles that thou doest except God be with him. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot enter or cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus saith unto him, How can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. Marvel not that I say unto thee, ye must be born again. The wind bloweth where it listeth, and thou hearest the sound thereof, but canst not tell whence it cometh, nor whither and whither it goeth. So is every one that's born of the Spirit. Nicodemus answered and said unto him, How can these things be? And Jesus answered and said unto him, Art thou a master of Israel? Knowest not these things? Verily, verily, I say unto thee, we speak that we know, and we testify that we've seen, and you receive not our witness. If I've told you earthly things and you believe not, how shall you believe if I tell you heavenly things? And no man hath ascended up into heaven, but he that came down from heaven, even the Son of Man, which is in heaven. That's an interesting verse. You'll let the Holy Ghost God speak to you about that. It's unique that while Jesus was incarnated in a human body, he still did not relinquish his godly uh, uh, essence of, omni of omniscience, which means all-knowing, or omnipotence, which is all-powerful, nor even his omnipresence. As God, he could be in that body, still be other places as well. He's it on earth and in heaven at the same time. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoso believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoso believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already. Because he not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. This is a condemnation that light is coming to the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. Everyone that doeth evil hateth the light, neither cometh to the light lest their deeds should be reproved. But he that doeth truth cometh to the light that his deeds may be made manifest that they were wrought of God. Now I want to add verse 36 to that which is a statement of John under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God. And here's what he said. He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life. And he that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth upon him. Will you bow with me, Heavenly Father? I pray God the Holy Ghost now in the simplicity of this great truth and yet the profoundness of it, the depth of it, the Holy Spirit of God would make it real to every man, woman, boy, and girl in the sound of my voice. And God pierce hearts with the truth of the Word of God. I pray it shall be a blessing to those who have experienced the new birth. And I pray, God, it shall be a drawing and a convicting power 
to those who have not. And I'll thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. If this is the most familiar verse in the New Testament, no doubt it is, then it's probably true that probably more sermons preached from this one verse than any other verse in the Bible. You see it everywhere. You see it on bumper stickers and you see it on placards at ball games. You see it on T-shirts. You see it everywhere. It's quoted from the lips of believers almost constantly. In fact, they'd be amazing to know. I, I would just about imagine that worldwide, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, that if you could tune in to the Christian population around the world, that this would be a continual streaming verse. Boy, that gives me a Holy Ghost bunch right now. Somewhere right now, somebody's quoting this verse. Last night at midnight, somebody was quoting that verse. And it's going 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And it has been since it was given in this passage of Scripture. Wow. What an amazing truth. Don't let familiarity breed contempt. If we get past John 3, 16, we've probably gone too far. If we get so deep that we don't find truth and joy in this verse, then we've, we've gone too far. I want you to notice in the first place this morning an awful prospect. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoso believed him should not perish. What an awful prospect to live in a beautiful country like this and yet to perish. I watched a little bit of early morning news this morning. There was a man killed on the belt line walking. There was a woman killed in the parking lot in Walmart in Smithfield, death everywhere, people dying everywhere. And it seemed that they were sudden and tragic. If you listen to the obituaries, you'll hear people who die who are 80, 90 years old. You'll hear people who die young. And I don't know, somehow, I know that it's, it's a, it, it grieves the heart of the loved one if somebody is 70 or 80 or 90 or 100 years old. But yet somehow we all react a little bit differently if it's a child or a teenager or if they die in a horrific wreck. We don't use the term die sometimes. If there's a house fire, sometimes the commentators will say that five people perished in the fire. You see, there's something about that word perish that even carries a higher and a more awesome and a more awful condemnation than just the word death. It has the idea of perishing has to do with almost an unnecessary death or, or, or a, a, a shocking death or a wasteful death. They perished has to do with the with the the severe or the awful circumstances of it. And God said that it, those who don't trust the Lord Jesus Christ, they'll perish an unnecessary death, a, a shocking death. Something premature, something's not necessary. Why did he weep over Jerusalem? Because he did not, he's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That he has no death, no pleasure in the death of the ungodly, but ple- it says pleasant or precious in the sight of the Lord of the death of his saints. When saints die, it's a precious thing in the eyes of the Lord, but it, it is a, it's a perishing it's a wasteful death. It's a shameful death. It's a, it's a sorrowful death. If somebody dies lost without Christ. And that's what happens. For every person who doesn't believe on the Lord, they perish. And it grieves the heart of the Son of Man when he gave that verse. He said, they'll perish. Except you repent, you shall all likewise perish. 
It's an awful thing. An awful prospect that you could perish, leave this world and be in hell unnecessarily. Leave this world wasting all of your life, wasting the opportunity to, to have joy and peace now and heaven for all eternity. To lose all of that, miss all of that. What an awful thing. What an awful thing to perish. But then I notice an awesome possibility for God so loved the world, so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoso believed in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Oh, an awesome possibility to have eternal life. Now, from a theological standpoint, everybody in this building will live forever because you're, you're created in the likeness and image of God. And everybody in this room will live forever somewhere. But some will be in hell for all eternity. And the Bible describes that eternal life of a believer, of an unbeliever as a lost person as the second death. It means to be consigned to be ever dying in a place called hell. Eternally perishing. What an awful picture. But the awesome possibility is this, is to have everlasting life. Christ said, I've come that you might have life and that you might have it more abundantly. He came so you could have your sins forgiven. You can have joy and peace now, but so that you can enjoy this life. But more than that, so you can live forever in a place called heaven. Boy, you can have that. Not one person in this building, in the sound of my voice, could not have that. Regardless of whatever you've done, he's able to save to the uttermost all that call upon him. Every person can have that. It's an awesome possibility. Well, listen, suppose, suppose I had a little bottle up here and I'd say, hey, if you drink this bottle, you'll never have another physical malady. You'll never be sick again. Some of you are battling right now disease. Some of you are battling cancer. And some of you have other diseases. And, and the doctor's been running all kinds of tests. He can't find out what's wrong with you. You would be eager to get that. So you can have physical life and have it with health and vitality and no pain. Boy, what a blessing that would be. But he said that you can have everlasting life down here and have the blessings of the Lord here. But thank God you'll live in heaven where there's no more sickness, no more sorrow, no more pain for all eternity to be in his presence. What? Boy, I want to tell you right now, that's a deal. I'd take that any day of the week as opposed to perishing but it's only a possibility because the Bible says in this passage of scripture, it says this, he that believeth not is condemned. He that believeth not is condemned already. Already. You see, it's the perishing part is an awesome prospect. You're going to experience that unless you get in on the the awesome possibility. Amen. He that believeth. Amen. I notice not only in here this awful prospect and this, this awesome possibility, but I would call your attention to an amazing passion. You say, Brother Bill, how in the world could that happen? It was an amazing passion. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. 
It's amazing to me that Jesus was willing to come and that God was willing to allow his son to die for you and for me. Why would he give a perfect son for imperfect people? An obedient son for disobedient people. A holy son for unholy people. Why? For God so loved. That's amazing. That's amazing. He loved people who cursed him. He loved people who trampled underfoot the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. He loved you. I don't know if there's ever been a greater demonstration of that love than Calvary. He loved, he gave his son to die for you. But of all the utterances on the cross, the one that amazes me more than anything else is this. Father, forgive them. They, 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 the man, they just got through pulling his beard out. They got through spitting in his face and beating him with their fist and, and put a crown of thorns on his head and beating him with a rod and beating him with a cat of nine tails. And he said, Father, forgive them. That's an amazing passion to me. He loved you enough to die for you. He'll save you. He wants you saved. But then I noticed something else. I noticed here in this passage that, uh, that astounding presentation. He loved us, but he gave his son. Boy, that, that to me, boy, that, that, that is such awesome presentation. I've dealt with this briefly. Some of you are not here. That word gave is not the idea of, of just sharing a gift with somebody. It has to do, it is a sacrificial term. It means he offered his son. Much like Abraham, when Abraham went up on the mountain of, with his son Isaac and he prepared the altar and he t bound his son and put him on that altar. And the Bible said he raised that knife and was going to plunge it into his son's heart. And God stopped him and he, there was a ram caught in a thicket. And I'm reminded of what Abraham told Isaac. He said, God will provide himself a lamb. And that's what he did on Calvary. He gave. What, what, an, what an amazing, what an awesome, what, what an abounding gift. He gave his son as a sacrifice. He knew what was going to happen. Christ could not save you through his teachings. He could not save you through his life. He could not save you through his miracle working power. He could only save you through his death. And what an amazing, awesome presentation. He gave his son as a sacrifice. Offered him. And then here is this last thing. It is the availability in this passage of scripture, in this process. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever. Now, that is, that is a non-qualifying word. There's no exclusiveness to that. It doesn't exclude anything. It is a blanket invitation it is an inclusive term. 
Anybody, whosoever, red or yellow, black or white, American or African, Indian, Asian, whoever, young or old, educated, uneducated, moral or immoral, from, from the harlot to the Hollywood actor, from the socialite to the upstanding citizen, whosoever, whosoever, or the availability of it just blows my mind. Anybody can be saved. Rich, rich man, poor man, beggar man, thief, doctor, lawyer, Indian chief, he'll save you. Whosoever. Whosoever. Now, what, what is it, whosoever? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. He says himself in verse 18, he that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten son of God. And then in verse 36, John in the inspiration of the Holy Spirit says, he that believeth on the son hath everlasting life. He that believeth not the son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth upon him. Believeth. You say, Brother Billy, that sounds too easy. Well, that sounds easy, but it's not because of your nature. Because by nature, you feel like you've got to do something. By nature, you have a wicked, depraved nature that says you're okay like you are. By nature, you said there's nothing free. But the Bible said the wage of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And my dear friend, it's available to whosoever will, to any man or woman or boy or girl this morning who wants to be saved, if you'll believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible said if you believe in your heart, confess with the mouth that God had raised him from the dead, it is important that you understand the concept of what the gospel really is. Jesus bore your sins on the cross. He died and he paid that sin debt, satisfied all the demands of a holy God, was buried, but he arose again the third day. That's validation that God accepted that payment. And he's alive right now. The gospel is the death, burial, the resurrection of Christ, that he's already paid your sin debt. But it's a gift. And in order for you to experience it, you have to receive it. You must believe in that and receive it. And then he goes on in Romans, he says this, Romans chapter 10. He said, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. I am convinced that I believe in heart is a calling heart. And the only way for you to be saved is to believe and call, whether you do it vocally or in your heart, that you'll receive it and believe it, that Jesus died for you. Nicodemus was a religious man, very active in church could quote the first five books of the Bible. But he missed the one imperative to go to heaven. He that hath the Son hath life. He didn't have Jesus. He had not responded in faith. He did not have a birthday. There was not a time when he was born again. I'm not asking you if you're religious. I'm not asking you or you're a member of anybody's church. Not asking you, have you learned any type of catechism? But is there a time 
that you were born again. He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life. He that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth upon him. Would you bow your heads in prayer? With every head bowed, every eye closed this morning. I was thinking this morning, as I, this was on my heart through the week, you, you know how the devil does. He'd say, that's, you're not preach. that's just too simple. That's just too simple. They've all heard that. But maybe you hadn't heard that. Maybe you've never really heard it. Maybe you've never really experienced it. To believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, to accept him, to have a, a day, to have a birthday. He said to Nicodemus, you must be born again. God does that. It's a birth from above. It's when you come and say, Lord Jesus, I'm a sinner, but I believe you died to save sinners. I believe you, you shed your blood for me. I believe you paid all my sin debt. I want to thank you and receive you as my personal Savior. I receive that wonderful gift. I believe that Jesus Christ died for me, and I accept it now by faith. If you've never done that, I want to ask you to do that today. Let's stand together with our heads bowed and eyes are closed. God, the Holy Spirit spoke to your heart. I'd invite you to come get around this altar this morning. If you're here this morning, I'll pray with you. Others pray with you, but you don't need that. If you know that you're lost, you know that you've never had a birthday, you know you've never been saved, will you come right now and make sure? Will you come right now and talk to him? Come and say, dear Lord Jesus, I receive you as my Savior and Lord. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Not going to do you any good for me to call. Not going to do any good for anybody else to call. Not your mama, your daddy, your husband, wife, nobody. You've got to do that. And so you come. You come right now, boys and girls, men and women. You come. If you not, don't know Christ, you come right now and call on him. I promise you he'll save you. He knows you already. Knows all about you. And on homecoming day, what a joy to know that we're saved. He that believeth not is condemned already. And he that believeth not shall not see life. He that believeth not cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. He that believeth not, the wrath of God's abiding upon him. Thank God the wrath's gone for me. Thank God the wrath's gone for your saved. And thank God heaven is your home. And you might want to come just get around the altar on homecoming Sunday and thank him that you're glad for a good church home. But thank God for heaven, which is your home. You come right now. While folk are coming, you'll not be the first many are coming right now. Heavenly Father, I pray God the sweet Holy Ghost of God right now will do what no man could do, convict of sin, righteousness, and judgment, and draw them by your grace. And I pray right now, Heavenly Father, that God, some man, woman, boy, or girl, for the very first time, would call on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved.